uh, in the far end of our backyard, we had a Model A that had been converted into a tractor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it was pretty cool. Now, if, if you've never driven such a thing, you know, it is the, it is the epitome of, you know, if you can't find it, grind it. And I mean, this thing was, you know, you had to crank it to start it, that sort of thing. But it had been made into a tractor. And it ran, if you could get it to crank over, and if you knew how to use manual spark advance, because you had to have one person cranking and one person to move this lever, so that the electric, yeah, yeah, But I, when I was a little kid, I liked to just go in the backyard and sit on it and pretend like I was driving, right? You know, fire or whatever. And um, I'd come back inside and my hands would be black because it had an old, the steering wheel, it was made out of this stuff called Bakelite. And Bakelite, once it got old, got really just rubbed off on your hands. And yeah, anyway. <laughs> now my parents were obviously not worried that anything was gonna happen. They didn't stop, go out there and supervise me while I was sitting on the old Model A tractor because, I mean, I certainly couldn't start it. And it, you couldn't even move the steering wheel. This is obviously long before, you know, even power steering or anything like that. And really, unless this thing was actually moving, you could not turn that wheel at because um, it's, I mean, let's just face it, it's tough to steer a parked car, right? Now you might be wondering, what does that have to do with the book of Acts? Didn't have any cars in Acts. I mean, I mean, I know it says that the apostles were all in one accord, but that wasn't a Honda. Um, and um, in fact, though, we're going to find out that, that steering a parked car and trying to follow God's will might actually have something to do with each other. Now last week, you'll remember, we saw Paul and Barnabas get into a little argument uh, over John Mark and whether uh, he could go with them on the second missionary journey or not. And we know that this argument was serious enough it caused Barnabas and Paul to stop working together. And Barnabas went one direction with John Mark and Paul took Silas uh, in another direction and they eventually found Timothy and Timothy joined them. And we learned from that that, you know what, godly people can disagree. I mean, no one is going to going to dispute either Paul or Barnabas' godliness. And godly people can disagree, but it is important that we do not let our disagreements turn into divisions like it did for them. We also know sometime later in history that Paul and John Mark would end up working together again um, because Paul commends John Mark in some later writings. But we're never going to know what could have been had they kept the band together instead of all going solo. Well, today we're going to follow Paul and Silas and Timothy as they continue their journey, as they go through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, um, and what seemed to be where they're getting a lot of dead ends. Let's pick up the story with these dead ends in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So Paul and company, they were in Derby and Lystra area. That's where they got Timothy and everything. And they head north and try to go east. Now I've got a map here for you. And so, you know, they're here, okay? And they start to head north through Phrygia and Galatia. And they kind of, we get the indication they want to go this way. Right, here's Bithynia, more Galatians here. And somehow they're stopped from going that way, so they keep going this way. And they want to go this way, not miss you, right? Ah, no, can't go that way. 
and they end up in trials. Now, nowhere are we given the mechanism of how God denied them passage into those areas. It says that they recognized, you know, the Spirit was preventing them, but it doesn't tell us how. Did they have visions, direct revelations, angelic messenger? Just seems that, you know, every time they headed some direction, they were told they couldn't go there. Maybe, maybe it was just circumstances, right? Go one place and there's bandits on the road. You go another direction, the Roman soldiers are like, nah, you can't, you can't come here. We don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just bad weather. The mechanism by which God directs them, we are not given. And since we're not told, no amount of speculation is going to help us much. We just have to ask Paul and Silas and Timothy when we get to heaven. But either way, Luke makes it clear to us that they are being pushed in a certain direction. They are being directed by God. The exact mechanism of which is not specified. And they eventually end up in the port city of Troas, where Paul has a vision. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So they prevented, been prevented from going elsewhere. They end up in Troas. And if we go back to our map, we're going to notice something really important to this story, right? Okay, look, look I want you to just concentrate on where Troas here. Now, now imagine this is what we call Turkey today. Okay, this is regions of Greece and you know, Macedonia then and Achaia. <coughs> Now, if you notice, Troas is the northern and most western city of Asia Minor. You can't really go any farther west, and you can't go any farther north unless you start going back east, right? And the map is that direction. Anyway, it's the stopping off point if you are going to sail from Asia Minor to Greece, because it's the shortest distance to sail over. You just would quick hop to Samothrace, next hop, you're going to you can see from the map, it's the closest place. If you're going to travel, it's the easiest traveling, right there. And they get to this city, which clearly they have been steered toward, right? Because they couldn't go this way, they couldn't go that way. They had to go to Troas. Then Paul has this vision. Now, I mean, you know, you think, you think God, God could have just simplified this whole process. If he just sent the vision, like right at the beginning, he said, hey, can you, can you guys just go to Macedonia? Go to Macedonia, and then they would have been like, oh, okay. Right? That's not how he did it. For whatever reason, God's will up to this point was shown to them by him somehow through the Spirit, opening, you know, closing doors to go this way, closing it, can't go this way, can't go this way, get to Troas, by showing them not where not to go. And now that they're in Troas, which is exactly where they've been directed, now Paul gets a clear message in the form of a vision. Now in your Bible, depending on what kind of Bible you have, because there's a million different kinds of Bibles out there, my guess is that some of you have a heading over this section in the book of Acts in your Bible that says the Macedonian call. Okay, and, and in fact, many times I have heard this passage, that's been the title of the sermon, you also have probably maybe heard sermons where this is called the Macedonian call. 
Um, I would like to suggest a better name for it is the Macedonian Confirmation. Let's continue on. Verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into, go on into Macedonia. What does that suggest to you? They were already headed that way. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to South Thrace, and then the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained in this city some days. Now why do I call this confirmation? Because up to this point, they were trying various directions. But whatever ways they tried to go, the Spirit somehow, through mechanisms that are not revealed to us, didn't go somewhere else until they got to the place God wanted them. But the only reason to get them to that place or for them to go there would be if you're going to sail to Macedonia anyway. Because once you're there, there ain't nowhere to go except go home. Unless you're going to go on a boat. Across the ocean, the sea, the Mediterranean. Once you get to Troas, it's either sail or go home. When Paul gets the vision... They're already in Troas, and as we see from the text, to go on, they were already thinking about going to Macedonia, because the main reason to end up there would be to go to Europe. The vision is then a confirmation that they're on the right course. It's not so much as a, a call, as if they were clueless on what to do next. I, I, the, the text does not suggest to us they were sitting in Troas, twiddling their thumbs, going, well, I wonder what we should do now. Here we are in Troas. We're as far north and west as we can go. I wonder if we should go home. No. We weren't doing that. It's a confirmation that they were on the right path, as up to this point, all their other attempts at going in any other direction were met with resistance. And so they conclude in verse 10 that they are to go to Macedonia, because the vision is the sum of everything leading to this point. In fact, it's interesting, the other use of the word that is concluded the word concluded in this passage occurs in Acts chapter 9, verse 22, and there it is translated proving. So we put in here, proving that they were to go to Macedonia. It was confirmation, it was an assurance. They were directed to Troas by having all of their paths closed off to them. The only reason to go to Troas is to sail to Macedonia, and once there, God confirms it's exactly what they should do. The only other option was to go home. Now the bigger picture of the story, I think, though, is not that Paul had a vision, although that's great, or whether it's a call or a confirmation or both, but that God's will, even for the apostles, was not always clear. Because you just, I don't know, see, I don't know about you, okay? But it's easy for me, to just sit around and think that, that Paul and you know, Tim and all these guys, they just always had it all figured out. They just knew exactly what to do next and exactly where to go and exactly that. No. Actually, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> sometimes they didn't know. Now, sometimes they clearly did. But here, no. God's will is not clear. They go one way, they go another way. Oh, no, 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 no. Finally, they get to Troas, and then, yep, we've got another right course. 
But I think there are some principles that can kind of take the mystery a little bit out of God's will. So I want to take some of the mystery out of God's will. And that's going to take two things from us. One is we've got to think just about what we even mean by God's will. That's how we're going to finish this morning. And the next Sunday we're going to talk about how you discern what God's will might be. Because before we think about God's will in any particular decision, we, we need to kind of think about what do we mean by that? What do we mean by God's will? That can mean a lot of different things. And most theologians would divide, God, ugh, would divide God's will into three big categories. The first is what we would call his, his sovereign will or his decorative will. In other words, the things God has decreed. This is the way it's going to be. And then there's his moral will, or his preceptive will. That's how God tells us to live. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And then there's this idea of an individual or specific will. That is God's will as it relates to my decisions. So let's look at the sovereign will first. Now, by sovereign will, what we mean there is that God's, his, his overall plan that determines everything that happens in the universe, such as creation, right? He says, let there be light, boom, and there's light because it's God's will. If he says, let there be something, it's going to happen because he's God. The plan of history, the plan of redemption, those sort of things, right? All of those things are, are part of his sovereign will, things that keep the universe moving toward its end point. This is why prophecy works. Prophecy works because God has a sovereign will. He can make happen what needs to happen for prophecy to, to work. He's in charge. Parts of his sovereign will are given to us in the Bible. Some of it's not revealed to us. How is your mind of the words of R.C. Sproul when you think about sovereign will? The idea that there, there's not a molecule in the universe that is outside of God's sovereign control. Now that doesn't mean that God is sitting around up in heaven manipulating every molecule in the universe. I mean, wow, can you imagine how tedious that would be? I mean, God's smarter than that. But he can control everyone if he needs to. But of course, we know he's created a, a universe that doesn't need to directly intervene with every molecule. But there's none outside of his control. And the scriptures, you know, kind of point this out in a variety of places. For example, Daniel uh, 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In other words, the idea, look, God's going to do his thing, and there's nothing, you can't stop God. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, Person who, what, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He, he's working things according to his plan. He does not call me up in the morning and say, hey, Oral, what do you think we should do in the universe today? And it's a good thing because, you know, I probably have some dumb idea like, let's go shopping for guitars. God <laughs> <laughs> would be like, no, you have plenty. It is not my sovereign will nor my specific will for your life that you own any more guitar. No, I don't know. We'll pray about that. Um, <laughs> Romans 11, verse 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! 
How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has been the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Yeah, and then in your notes I gave you a bunch of other verses that all follow along the same thing. God's in charge and within his sovereign will he's going to do what he's going to do and you, you can't fix it. You can't stop it. You can't, you know. So some of the characteristics of God's sovereign will. It's his plan for all the events of the universe. And it's moving toward a purpose which we know is final redemption. There's parts of it are revealed, right? We know that God is moving everything toward a purpose eventually that has to do with Jesus' return and setting up of a kingdom and eternity and resurrection and all that, right? Okay? Now, some theologians even include the basic physical laws of the universe as part of God's sovereign will. When he created the universe, he, part of his will, he created laws so that he does not have to directly intervene in everything. You know, he doesn't, if I... If I take, uh, you know, this cable right here and I drop it, he doesn't have to intervene so that it falls. He created gravity and it falls. Some of it's revealed in the Bible. And the parts that we don't know that aren't revealed in the Bible, we just have to wait and see how they work out in history. Because he just kind of gives us a general plan, right? going to be at end times, and things are going to happen, and that sort of thing, but he didn't give us the exact details. Right? This is why we were talking about Wednesday night. That's my number one rule of interpreting prophecy. You don't fully understand how a prophecy is going to be fulfilled until after it's fulfilled. Okay, number three. You are not expected to figure out God's sovereign will other than what he's revealed in the scriptures. You don't have to sit down and figure it out. Okay, it's going to happen. You don't have to sit and speculate about every last event in history. It's okay. Because number four is you can't miss it because God's sovereign will always comes to pass. That's why it's his sovereign will. It will always come to pass. It's always going to happen. Because he's directing it to happen. And it includes both good and evil. Is Putin going to start a nuclear war? I don't know. I don't think so. But I don't know for sure. We'll know if it happens. And if it does, you know what that means? God has allowed it to happen. So it's accounted for somehow in his sovereign will. Even though if it does happen, which I really don't think it's going to, but if it does, it doesn't mean God made it happen, but he allowed it to happen. Somehow in his sovereign plan for history. As we know, the scripture also says he does not directly cause evil. But he's accounted for it in his plan. Because that's the last thing about his sovereign will. It is ultimately ideal in the long run, but it's indirectly ideal. Because it allows for evil. It allows for the bad decisions of world leaders. But all of that stuff is somehow working together to bring God's plan out and to give him glory and bring, his, uh, bring history to its conclusion. So, when we're talking about a sovereign will, it isn't, you can't be outside of God's sovereign will because it doesn't have anything to do with you as far as whether it's going to happen or not. It's his sovereign will, and it's sometimes revealed, and it's sometimes mysterious, and it's going to happen. Okay. Second thing, it's this idea of God's moral will. What do we mean by that? 
God's revealed commands in the Bible that tell us how we ought to believe and live. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God. Oh, there it is. See, whenever you see that in the scriptures, your ears should perk up because, I mean, he's, he's just coming right out and telling you. It's really handy. There's no mystery with God's moral will. Because he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. Okay, there you go. That's his will. It's part of his moral will. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's where we give thanks, and there's what he's telling you. Now, of course, he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, which I like to point out. It says in all. So even if Putin does start the nuclear war, we can somehow have to figure out what, you know, give thanks for in there. Maybe that he didn't drop a bomb on my head or something. Give thanks. That was it. It's the will of God. There you go. Anytime you find a command, for us or something like that, that tells you how you should think or how you should live, there's, you're getting his moral will. Right? It's, it's characteristics, or it's, it's the commands and principles that God gives you for life. And we are expected to learn and do it. The whole point in revealing his moral will to us is that we're supposed to do it. And so we can miss it if we fail to discover it or to obey it. You can miss God's moral will. You can thwart it in the sense you can, God has said, you can go off and do your own thing. You cannot give thanks in all circumstances. That's found in the Bible. It's revealed through supernatural revelation by the Holy Spirit as he spoke through the writers of Scripture. That's where you can find it. So, can you be outside of his moral will? Yeah. Anytime you sin, it's disobedience to God's moral commands. Sounds pretty straightforward, I think. Now remember, these are these are these are man's categories, right? You understand this. These aren't God's categories. This is just our way of helping to understand. But you know, the one everybody always wants to know about is this idea of God's individual or specific will, or as I often have heard it put many college students, when I was doing campus ministry especially, what is God's will for my life? Well, first of all, I can tell you that his will for your life starts with going back and learning his moral will and living those things out. You know, loving him and loving your neighbor, yeah, that starts there. But anyway, does God have, and, and what they're asking me when they're asking this question, okay, is does God have some sort of ideal life plan that is uniquely designed for me? Is there scriptural support for the idea that God has a plan for every detail of your life, or maybe just some details of your life? Or, as I had a professor in seminary who taught, as long as you're following the moral will, then everything else is fair game. Do what you want. As long as you're within the fence of God's moral will, doesn't matter what else you do. That was what he taught. So really, I think there's four possible options when it comes to this idea of the individual. One is God has a specific will for, for all the decisions of our lives. And if that's the case, do not go to Shields and buy a new pair of shoes without a word from the Lord. Because he may want you to buy Nikes, or he may want you to buy Birkenstocks. I don't know. Should I have pizza or chicken for dinner? I better pray about it. Pizza. <laughs> Now, is that a word from the Lord? See, I don't know. 
okay, if, if this is the truth, that somehow I need, I need to pray, I need his will for every decision. Right? Why would God give me a brain then? Because I can go to my freezer and go, well, there's no pizza in there, but there's chicken. I guess we're having chicken. So, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ixnay on that one because, I mean, I mean, when you start to think about the implications that you have to pray about, like every decision, it, it becomes impossible to live. Okay. Now then, there's the opposite end of that, which is my professor, right, in seminary. God has no will for your life outside of His revealed moral will, and that's it. Now. Yet we just read a story in the book of Acts where God clearly had a will, at least for three guys. Well, I don't know how many other people were traveling with him, but for sure we know there's at least three of them, right? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Okay? He clearly had a will for where Paul and his company would go. But we also know sometimes we read the book of Acts and they just go wherever they're going to go with no specific direction. So that doesn't seem to be it either. He seems to sometimes have some desires that we do this, do that, or do the other thing. So that leads to a third possibility. God has a specific will, but it's only for your big decisions. Now here's the problem with that, in my mind. What constitutes a big decision? saw how long sometimes it takes Jen and I to decide what we're going to eat for lunch? Oh, that could be a major decision. That's true. So we both decided. Right. The pizza ranch. <laughs> could be worse. Could be pineapple. So, I, I, I bought a truck a month ago. You want me to buy a Honda? You want me to buy a Chevy? Chevy. Maybe you didn't care? <laughs> Maybe he didn't. <laughs> Maybe he didn't want me to buy anything. I don't know. Is that a big decision for me? Maybe. Was it for God? Right. Classic one, of course, that I always got from college students. Who does God want me to marry? Man, college students—they were obs Christian college students, at least in the '90s, were obsessed with getting married. It was like that was the end all, be all. I mean, I love being married, okay? I mean, you know, but I'm just saying, I'm not sure that that's the, when you're in college, has to be the, like, number one absolute priority of your life. But anyway, who am I going to marry, right? Well, that's, pre that's a pretty big decision. Better pray about that one. It's a problem, right? How am I going to know which ones are which ones, okay? So I I'm going to come at you with a variant of that, which is simply that God sometimes guides in specific ways at certain times. And I think the biblical evidence points to this. Here in Acts 16, right, we see God is guiding Paul and his team to a specific place and then confirms to them they're on the right path and off they go to Macedonia. But then, you know, you read the next couple verses and they go to Macedonia and they travel around and they end up in Philippi and we don't hear any more involvement of God telling them they had to get to Philippi or that they should have stayed on Sabbath race or shouldn't have or anything like that. Sometimes there's things he wants us to do or he's going to guide us to do, and sometimes, you know what? You're on your own. Because he gave you brain for a reason. 
more people should use them. Especially in the roundabouts. So of course the big question is, how do we know when God does or doesn't have a will about something that he desires to direct me? And then when he does, how do I find out how he's going to direct me? That's a big question, right? Because that's what you're going to want to know here. <clears throat> well, I can tell you one lesson, at least that we can get from here in Acts 16, is that you can't steer a car that's not moving. You can't steer the parked car. I think, in general, we need to be moving in some direction and then start looking for whatever God will do to direct us. This is why I think the whole idea of opening and closing doors is not a bad one. Some, I mean, God directed them somehow with his spirit by not letting them go some places and only allowing them to go other places. I think that's pretty legitimate, part of finding God's will for anything. Let's look at another time Paul didn't get what he planned. Romans 1.13, Paul's writing, he says, says to the Romans, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What did Paul plan to do? Well, it says here, he's tried several times, he wanted to go to Rome. He doesn't want to go to Rome, they got the Colosseum, right? Got that big obelisk thing there. Oh, that wasn't Billy. Why didn't Paul go to Rome? Well, we don't really know, but he was somehow prevented. Maybe every time he planned, he ended up in prison. Or maybe, you know, he ended up stoned, or he ended up kicked out of that city, or whatever it was, right? Because it seems like everywhere Paul goes, something bad happens. <laughs> Probably had a complex after a while, right? <sighs> Another city. <laughs> it's going to be whippings, stonings. Oh, man. Well, he didn't have a shipwreck, so of course that was on the way home. You know, I mean, the thing about this is if Paul had a lock on God's will, would he have planned to go to Rome only to be prevented? No, he would have just known not to go. But he didn't have a lock on God's will, did he? Do you really know? No. See, Paul, like us, is just doing his best to make some plans and figure out what God wanted him to do. He wanted to go to Rome, but he was prevented. So what's he going to do? He just keeps moving in whatever direction. He just keeps on keeping on. Kept moving and eventually know that eventually it's God's will for him to get to Rome, right? Because he does get there eventually. Not exactly the way he planned. But he finally gets to Rome when it's time for him to get to Rome. And that still leaves us with the question. How do we discern when God does care and has a specific will for me about some decision or some direction. And how am I going to know that? Well, there are answers to that question. But that's going to have to be the context of the next Sunday's Because otherwise you don't get to put pizza ranch for lunch. So I would say until then, just keep your car moving and see what happens next. Let's pray. Father, I'm glad... When I, when I read about the Apostle Paul, who it's so easy to think um, somehow had superhuman insight into your will and everything, and to realize he didn't sometimes. Sometimes he just had to go in a direction and just kind of see how he directed it. And sometimes he made plans and something else had to be done. And 
And so I'm grateful for his example because it gives us all hope that in this um, idea of knowing your will, that it is possible for us to receive direction from him, but also to understand then that you have given us minds for a reason. You've given us your principles in scripture and your moral will to guide us in many, many things in life. There's so many things you've already given us the answer for. We just need to put that answer into practice. And also to know that in the grand scheme of history, your plan is going forward and you are in control of all things. Father, I pray that in that we would seek to follow you in everything and to give you the honor and glory that you deserve. Jesus.